Turn your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 31. As we have been studying the book of Jeremiah, we've seen that God, uh, through the prophet Jeremiah, had constantly warned the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, the only one still in existence, of his coming punishment and their captivity if they did not repent of their sins and obey him. As they persisted in their rebellion against God, and God sent, as he had said he would, the king of Babylon. And uh, Judah was conquered, and some of the uh, people were carried off captive. Daniel was carried off, Ezekiel was carried off, and some others. But the city was not destroyed, and uh, the king of Babylon set up a puppet kings. Uh, but they kept flirting with Egypt, another power. And in this prophecy, which is presently before us in chapter 31, the time of this is around 589 B.C. Zedekiah is this final king of Judea prior to the total nation going into captivity. A new pharaoh has just come to the throne in Egypt, Hophra, and uh, Zedekiah courts his favor again. It infuriates uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he sends his armies. They begin to take city after city in Judea as they head for Jerusalem. At this point, Jeremiah, who has been predicting uh, the destruction of the city and of the temple and the going into captivity, changes his tone a little, and not uh, from saying that they'll go into captivity, but for giving uh, hope concerning their return from captivity. He had spoken of this early, but now he dwells on it. And we could call uh, this section... Uh, within Jeremiah, the book of consolation, about chapter 30 to 34, as he gives consolation concerning the future hope of Israel, the return from captivity and even an even greater future hope in terms of a new covenant. The first thing that we have in this 31st chapter is uh, the prediction of the redemption from captivity. They're going into captivity. Uh, not being permanent, had been mentioned back in chapter 30 and verses 10 and 11. In chapter 30, uh, verse 10, Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be ye dismayed, O Israel. For lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and shall be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure. So he would not make a full end. And this is now uh, predicted further in chapter 31, the prediction of the redemption from captivity. In uh, verse Three of chapter 31, we have the perpetual love for Israel that lay behind this future redemption from captivity. Verse 3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. 
Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. So, behind the redemption from captivity was this perpetual love. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. And when he says that, he's speaking of the true Israel, not just the nation uh, per se, but those true believers within the nation and, and uh, even beyond that, those who would be among the Gentiles, who would have a like faith to Abraham's faith. Uh, we are part of that promised seed of Abraham, the true Israel. So when you read a verse like that, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Apply it to your own heart. I like the great hymn. Loved with an everlasting love. Led by grace, that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me. It is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace. Oh, this transport all divine. In a love which cannot cease, I am his. And he is man. And then the hymn writer goes on to say, knowing that, that all of life takes on a different quality. Heaven above is softer blue. Earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Amen. Loved with an everlasting love. It changes everything about life. There's the love that uh, lays behind, lies behind it, the perpetual love, the, the prediction of it we have again in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. In verse 27, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. The prediction of this future redemption. The penitence requisite for this future redemption. When he brings them back, they'll have a different attitude than they had when they went out. They were impenitent. They didn't respond to his warnings and his word. But having been chastened, they would come to repentance. And verse 18, I have surely heard Ephraim, that's another name for Israel, bemoaning himself thus, Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised. As a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. That's a figure of being ashamed. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. That as a result of God's chastisement, there would be penitence, humility, repentance, which is requisite for God's blessing. You cannot go on in your own rebellious way and receive the blessing of God. 
If you're not a Christian and you consist, you persist in your rebellion, you'll go to hell. If you are a Christian and you are rebellious, you'd not be as rebellious as the non-Christian or you're not a Christian at all. But if you are a Christian and you do not obey the Lord, he will chasten you. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he will bring you to repentance in that way. And the fact that you are a Christian is evidenced by your coming to repentance when he chastens you. If you're not a Christian and he chastens you, it may only harden you. But here he says, I have heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. Israel would come to a true sorrow and a true repentance. And then God would bless. In verse 20, uh, the sonship reaffirmed. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? Well, he wasn't really. He'd been a rebellious child. But yet God loved him. For since I speak against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my bowels are troubled for him. God represents himself as a father who, down in his bowels, yearns for his wayward son. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. But notice when that comes, when Ephraim comes to repentance. So here's this reaffirmation of acceptance back into fellowship. The prediction of the redemption from captivity, the prediction of the institution of a new covenant. There is one aspect of hope as the people are soon, only within a year from now or so, two years at the most, to be led out and their city destroyed and their temple burned. But yet there's hope. And he pictures part of it here, but then he goes on to lead into an even greater promise. The prediction of the institution of a new covenant in verses 31 through 34. The covenanting parties are mentioned in 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The covenanting parties, the house of Israel and the house of Judah and the Lord. But that can be misleading if you take that to mean that this is a covenant between the Lord and literal Israel. Because that isn't what it means. Now that's the way some interpret it. Some say it says Israel, it says Judah, that must be the way it is. But we must interpret the Bible, the Old Testament, in the light of the New Testament. And in the New Testament, this passage is applied to the church. It's applied to not only Israel after the flesh, but the true Israel, Jew and Gentile, who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have it uh, interpreted in the book of Hebrews, in the 8th chapter, uh, starting with verse 6. But now hath he, Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises, talking about this covenant that Jeremiah is predicting. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. There would have been no need for a new covenant. Not a, uh, For finding fault with them, he, God, saith, Behold, the days come, and now he begins quoting this 31st chapter of Jeremiah. 
This is the longest quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Very significant passage. And very significant for our understanding of the relationship between Israel and the church. Uh, He says, uh, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers. And he quotes from this passage. And then in verse 13, he says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. The writer of the Hebrews is saying, that the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament, was done away with, with the first coming of Christ. And with the first coming of Christ and his death, the New Covenant, predicted by Jeremiah, was inaugurated and brought in, ushered in. And therefore there's no more space for the Old. The Old vanishes away. And you and I are a part of and included in this New Covenant. And he's applying it to the Christian church. Over in the ninth chapter of Hebrews, he goes on to speak of Christ as the mediator of this covenant. And he says in verse 14 of Hebrews 9, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your consciences from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, uh, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Christ, you remember, in his death, as he approaches it, he says to his disciples, this cup, representing his blood to be spilt, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink all ye of it. So Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, institutes it by his coming, by his death, by his resurrection. And uh, that's the covenant that you and I are a part of. J. Barton Payne, a professor at the uh, seminary in St. Louis, Covenant Seminary, where many of our young men are studying, has written a book, The Theology of the Older Testament. And he says that this quotation of Jeremiah in Hebrews is one of Scripture's clearest presentations on the organic testamental development of Israel into the church. He says some writers stress the fact that the predicted New Testament is to be made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah and claim, therefore, that it cannot be fulfilled in the church. And he particularly quotes C.C. Ryrie, who says that. This assertion, however, says Barton Payne, begs the question by assuming the very lack of identity between Israel and the church that is under investigation. Such writers also claim that the epistle to the Hebrews quotes Jeremiah's New Testament as descriptive not of God's present relationship with the church, but of his future relationship with Israel. This claim, however, is difficult to support. Ryrie, for example, concedes 
One cannot deny that the church receives similar blessings to those of the new covenant with Israel. Regeneration, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, teaching of the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, which are the four important blessings promised to Israel in Jeremiah 31, 34. 31, 31 to 34. All, they are all promised to those who believe on Christ in this age. Barton Payne points out that Hebrews 8.13, which we read, states that it is by means of Jeremiah's New Testament that God makes the First Testament old. It follows, therefore, that the Christian order must be Jeremiah's New Testament. Ryrie concedes that the New Testament of 9.15, that's where Christ establishes it on the basis of his death, but established by Christ's death. But since he is obligated to maintain the testament of 8.12, Hebrews 8.12, as one that is distinct from the church, he is forced to the conclusion that there must be two New Testaments in Hebrews. The future one in chapter 8, which is with Judah and Israel, and the present one in chapter 9. Well, of course, Ryrie is wrong. There's only one New Testament. And it's made with the house of Judah and the house of Israel and you and me. And we are a part of the true Israel. The church today is the true Israel. That includes some Jews who believe in Christ and some Gentiles who believe in Christ. That's not to say that there's not predicted in Scripture a yet future turning of the nation of Israel, the great majority of the Jewish people, to Christ someday. I believe that is predicted in Romans 11. But when they turn, they will come to be a part of the Israel of God, which you and I are a part of. They'll come to be a part of the church and to live under the new covenant that you and I are presently living under and experience the privileges of that. Nothing could be clearer, and this is important for our interpretation of the Old Testament and the relation between the Old Testament and the church today. The covenanting parties we've taken a look at, the contrast with the past. In Jeremiah 31, 32, this new covenant is contrasted with the old covenant that was established with Abraham and then with Moses, so on. He says in verse 32, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. Now this contrast, he says, this new covenant won't be like that covenant. And yet it really is the same covenant. And we shouldn't understand the contrast as an absolute contrast. Really, there's one covenant of grace. God has had one way of saving men since the fall of Adam. Same way that Abraham was saved, you and I are saved. Paul builds that argument in Romans and in Galatians. In Romans 4, he says, What shall we say that Abraham our father has found? If he were justified by works, if he was saved by his good works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. But what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. Abraham wasn't saved by his good works. 
Abraham was a sinner, like you and I are sinners. But when he put his trust in God's promise to forgive him through the blood of the Lamb, he was saved. And you and I are saved in exactly the same way, says Paul. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith, meaning faith in Christ crucified and risen, by faith, without the deeds of the law, not by works. And it's a faith that unites us to Christ and thus results in works. Faith without works, faith that doesn't produce obedience, is dead faith. One covenant of grace, Calvin says, as to the new covenant, it is not so called new because it is contrary to the first covenant, the covenant with Abraham and Moses. For whence do we, do we derive our hope of salvation except from that blessed seed promised to Abraham? Further, why are we called the children of Abraham? These things, no doubt, are sufficient to show that God has never made any other covenant than that which he made formerly with Abraham. It being new, no doubt refers to what they call the form, but the substance remains the same. Now, what he's saying is this. As one covenant of grace, your Bible is divided into Old Testament, New Testament, better terminology, Old Covenant, New Covenant, better understanding, old administration of the one covenant of grace, new administration of the one covenant of grace. The substance is the same, but the form changes, the administration changes. How was the old administered? What was the content? Remember the contrast that's made in Hebrews. He says the new is founded on better promises, so it's a better covenant. What were the promises under the old? What did God promise Abraham? Well, he promised him a seed. That seed ultimately was Christ. He promised him a land, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. What did Abraham understand that promise to mean? That he would have some earthly ground for an everlasting possession? That's not the way Abraham understood it. You know why? He never built himself a permanent home on that plot of ground because he knew he wouldn't stay there. He dwelt in a tent all of his life, as did Jacob, as did Isaac. And they who live like that, says Hebrews, declare plainly that they seek a country that is an heavenly country. And God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared such for them. What does it say Abraham sought? Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham reflected on that promised land, and he said, God isn't promising me some dirt forever. God is promising me union with himself forever in a city that will last forever. Everlasting life in heaven, or a new heavens and a new earth. But that's a hazy way to say it, isn't it? that I'll give you Canaan as, as an everlasting possession. That's a mighty hazy way to say it. Contrast that to John 14. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas said, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Jesus answered and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. How's that for a promise? Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We know that if this earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, we have a building not made with hands eternal in the heavens. In this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. He says we are confident, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. A clear, concrete promise of heaven. Contrast that to the haziness of the old. You begin to get some feel of the difference between the two covenants. The better promises, same in substance, but so much clearer and so much greater in other aspects. Under the old, you kept bringing your lamb for forgiveness of sins, and you gave it to the priest. You couldn't come directly into the presence of God. You had a high priest, and he couldn't come directly into the Holy of Holies either, symbolizing the presence of God except once a year with that blood of the Lamb. And they had to keep offering the Lamb over and over and over. Did that Lamb really procure forgiveness? Of course not. How can a Lamb's blood atone for a man's sin? Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin. But it can picture Jesus' blood, a Lamb-like person, whose blood could atone for sin. Not all the blood beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or take away the stain. But Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sin away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. So we begin to see the difference. Under the old, uh, many barriers, everything said, draw back, God is holy, you dare not come too close. We see the promises of the old. The content of the present covenant is brought before us now in Jeremiah. Let's see what these better promises are. Jeremiah 33, this shall be the covenant that I shall make with the house of Israel, meaning you and me and the Jew who believes. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What's the content of the present covenant? Number one, a new inscription of the law of God. Where was it inscribed under the old covenant? On tablets of stone externally. Where is it inscribed under the new covenant? I will write my law on their hearts, he says, uh, in their inward parts. The implication is to give you and me a heart in harmony with the spirit of the law so that the law is not something we despair over, but something we delight in after the inward man. We want to do God's will in our heart, even though we struggle with it. Uh, there's an elaboration of that promise in Ezekiel 26 when God says, I will take the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. And I will write my law on that heart, and I will put my spirit within you, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and judgments and to do them. He will produce obedience by this regeneration and by the placing within of his Holy Spirit. 
That's not to say that under the old covenant, regeneration didn't take place or the Holy Spirit didn't dwell within. Calvin says, was the grace of regeneration warning to the fathers under the law? He says, this is preposterous. But this grace of God was rare and little known under the law. But under the gospel, the gifts of the Spirit have been made more abundantly available to all of God's people. His whole church. You remember Joel's prophecy? It shall come to pass in the latter days that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, meaning all true believers. Your young men uh, shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and so on. Under the old covenant, the Spirit was given to all to some degree, to a few to a greater degree, like Moses, Elijah, Elisha. Elisha had a double portion of the Spirit. Under the new covenant, the Spirit is poured out on all believing flesh, and every Christian has the Spirit indwelling to a much greater degree than even the greatest of the old, has much greater resources to live the Christian life. Jesus said that he would pray the Father, and the Father would send the Spirit, and the works that he did we should do also, and greater works than these should we do as a result. What a promise. But you see, the average Christian doesn't know what he has. And he's still living as if he were under the old covenant. He's not appropriating that power of the Spirit. He's not filled with the Spirit day in, day out, appropriating that power, walking in the Spirit. And he's not possessing his possessions. He doesn't know what he has. He's living as if he were under the old covenant. Many people who are actually Christians are living at a level that is appropriate to the Old Covenant, not the New. We see this promise of a new inscription of the law. You want to get a feel of what that means, the law written on the heart, this inward change. Ever hear of Eldridge Cleaver, the head of the Black Panthers after Huey Newton was taken, who hated America, who hated uh, Police who coined the phrase pigs, I believe, for police. He was finally taken uh, in a great gun battle out in California. He escaped the country, though, and toured around the communist countries as a VIP. They rolled out the red carpet in Cuba, in China, in Russia, all over. Yet as he went, he began to see that the poorest people in America had far more freedom than people anywhere else. And that communism was not what it was cracked up to be. It was deceitful, an illusory promise. His false gods began to tumble. He was torn up inside. One night as he is out on the veranda of his apartment in France, he looked up at the moon, and it was as if a screen were flashing pictures on the moon. He saw his own picture in the moon. He was dumbstruck. And then he saw his gods. He saw Fidel Castro. He saw Mel Satan. And he saw Jesus Christ suddenly, the last one, and that one remained. And he fell on his knees and burst into tears. He could remember a little bit of the 23rd Psalm from childhood, he began crying out to the Lord and praying. And then he ran inside and found a Bible that his wife had brought with him from America. He began reading the 23rd Psalm. 
The next morning he got up and told his wife they were coming back to America and he was going to turn himself in. That he'd seen a vision of, of light leading into a prison cell but then going out on the other side. He knew it was God's will that he'd come back. So he came back, contacted the Justice Department, arrangements were made, he came back, he turned himself in. He was in prison until uh, some Christians got him out on bail and he's presently awaiting trial. But in, uh, in prison, when he came back, various ministers would come to the prison and they filled in the details that he didn't understand, explaining to him about Christ. And uh, Eldridge began to sense the difference between thought and prayer and actually began to pray. And from that time on, he says, I had a deepening awareness of my surrender to Jesus Christ and of my rebirth. One change that came over Eldridge since, <clears throat> since then has been his ability to love. In the past, he had been quickly categorized people as friend or enemy. Today, he feels only one way. I can tell you that since that time, I haven't met anyone that I don't love. Now, I don't have any enemies. They may be people who don't like me. I may be their enemy, but they're not my enemy. There are many changes. From a sworn enemy of whitey, now comes, I think it doesn't matter what color people are or what class they come from. From a former communist comes, now the Lord is my bridge between the hearts of all peoples and between the people and God. From one who hated America, he says, I'd rather be in prison in America than free anywhere else. What produced this? The law written on the heart, that change under the new covenant that we've been reading about. And there's nothing anywhere else in this world that can produce that kind of change. And it's commonplace for Christianity. That's the norm for Christianity. A new inscription of the law is promised. A new relation. He says in uh, verse 33, I will be their God. They shall be my people. That's the formula of the covenant all along. I will be their God. They shall be my people. But in the old covenant, there were so many barriers. It wasn't close. Oh, he spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend face to face. But that was Moses, not the common person under the old. But now every Christian has direct access. We go into the presence of God. We have a closeness to him. He sent his spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, we feel close. We draw nigh. We're transformed from glory into glory. We're being made over like him. He'll do for us all that a God can do. And he can do all that we need. He will be our God. We shall be his people. A new revelation in verse 34a, They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, the simplest thing. God would teach Moses, Moses would teach the priests, the priests would teach the people. Oh, and the people were ignorant. But now God does the teaching. You have an anointing from the Spirit, and you need not that any man teach you, says Scripture. Oh, God gives teachers to his church. But the basic teacher is the Holy Spirit who dwells within and gives you discernment, enables you to spot the false from the truth as you study the Word. And works within to teach, to guide you into all truth. A new revelation. The old was hazy and limited to Israel. The new is clear and universal. Due to the incarnation, Christ becoming flesh, due to the teaching of the Spirit. You can see the difference in John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the greatest under the old covenant. Jesus said, There hath not been born of woman greater than John, but he that is least in the kingdom is greater than John.
You have a great understanding. John was confused. When he was put in prison, he sent to Jesus and said, Art thou he who would come, or look we for another? Today, a little child who sings, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He has clearer light on a lot of things than John. He that's least in the kingdom is greater than John. A new revelation, a new absolution. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We don't offer any more lambs. The lamb's been offered. And we know our sins are forgiven. What did we sing earlier? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus in all, in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed with righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown which is my own. John couldn't have sung it like that. Those Old Testament believers, they couldn't have sung it like that. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchased of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. They didn't have that. That kind of clear light and assurance and boldness and access. So what does it mean? It means we'll have ten million John the Baptist moving out from every church, knowing what they believe and why, and able to articulate it, and with a quality of life that exudes assurance, no matter what problems they may be encountering. Has confidence in God as their Father and His control of all things and His everlasting love for them. Oh, the power that we ought to exhibit if we appropriate our possessions. Filled with his spirit, walking under the control of his spirit. Are you doing that? Do you appreciate that new inscription of the law? That new relation? That new revelation? That new absolution? That's yours? If you're not a Christian, the thing needed is penitence. The thing needed is to bemoan your sin and to pray, Turn thou me, and I will be turned. God gives repentance. Cry out to him to break your heart. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, Christian, if you are living short of your possessions, won't you tell God that you know that and you want to possess them? And if you are not a Christian, won't you come to him in penitence and pray with Ephraim of old, turn thou me, and I shall be turned. Lord, I bemoan my sins. I ask forgiveness. I want that new covenant established with me right now, and I trust the Lord Jesus. Amen.